Our situations then are alike. We have neither of us anything to tell. You because you communicate, and I because I conceal nothing. Alright, this is genre. We're reading genre classics and pulp gold, and we watch the occasional blockbuster. We try to keep all our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connections between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. Right now, we're reading romance novels. We're starting a new series. We finish with Dune, six maximalist books of sci-fi, space opera, and now we've we've pulled it all the way back to, to, uh, to romance, from the maximal to the minimal, I think. And we're starting... Right in the old days with Jane Austen, I should I say, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, or as it was originally published, A Lady. Romance, romance. I'm I'm Bob. I'm interested in how characters, their pasts, are going to influence influence these romance plots. I'm John. I'm interested in the the battle between the heart and the mind, and both resisting the the tyranny of society. I'm Zach. You know, I, I love an allegorical perspective, and I love getting a little light shined in on the, the Marianne's and the Willoughby's lurking in the darkness of my soul. <laughs> All right, guys, what'd you think of this one? I love it. I love the style. I love people gossiping about each other, manipulating each other, people trying to fall in love, pasts ruining those loves. I'm, I'm into this romance genre. Very fun. Yeah, I think it's great. I think, like, you know, like I said in the intro... Like, I feel like we've gone from a very large, maximal, bombastic series of books in Dune. And now I'm really enjoying, it took me a while to adjust, but now I think I'm really enjoying the sort of the, the restrained, dignified prose and the, the action in very, very small details that we, we become sensitive to throughout reading this, I think. But I think it was really a case of like an adjusting my sensitivities, <laughs> right? From like the big ideas to now realizing the importance of like a single glance or you know, a, a politely mm-hmm. worded phrase. Yeah, I also think, I think about construction too. Like, I mean, I, I don't want to just spend the whole time comparing Sense and Sensibility to Dune, but, because that would be insane. But, oh, no, no, no. But, you know, to go from these novels where I constantly got the feeling that the author was just making it up as he went along, you know, no larger yeah. overarching thing to kind of guide the path towards. With Sense and Sensibility, everything feels like clockwork. You know what I mean? There's there's a rupture between two people, or there's some yeah. hidden thing, and then they have to find a way to either reconcile or be broken apart, but in another way redeem the characters that are, you know, you think someone's villainous, but there's always a, a redemption arc, or the wicked are always hidden, but then unearthed. It just feels so meticulously constructed compared to what we've been reading lately. It reminds me a little bit of like when we were reading Poirot. It reminds me of when we were reading the Poirot series, kind of a mystery where you have to, where everything is very significant and it is moving forward towards an ultimate reveal. Here we're going towards a marriage. We know it's going to happen. And in the Poirot stuff, we're going, we have a dead body at the beginning and we know it's going to be solved at the end. And everything is like clockwork, like I you said. Love, I love that comparison because, yeah, yeah, it is. So in in an Agatha Christie novel, you have a dead body, but we don't know who is the killer. We have all these people. We don't know who the killer is. Here, we have an impending marriage, but we don't know who the bride and the groom Mm. are. So like all the story is figuring out 
is the bride and who is the groom. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the reader is encouraged <laughs> to play matchmaker as well a little bit. You know, you, you, just like Mrs. Jennings is very comedic and very, very, very flamboyantly trying to uh, marry everyone together. The, the novel says something like uh, she'd married she's she's this woman, Miss Jennings, who invites the Dashwood sisters to live with her. She is said to have married off both of her children. So now all she has left to do in life is just marry off everyone else as well. And I think she's really like a comedic sort of uh, version of that. Like a really sort of like almost like drawing your attention to the fact that we're doing a lot of matchmaking in this book. Like she's like the comedy version of that in a way. It's that turned up to 11. Uh, but yeah, I think we are forced to do that by the book. And I, I think that also I think that this mystery comparison is very interesting because I think in a mystery we're constantly asking ourselves questions, right? Like who... Who is the killer? You know, why is the, why have they done this? Can I trust this person? And we are asking very similar questions here. Yeah. But the focus is obviously different. It's not like who did, killed this person, but it's like, will they or won't they get together? That's the big question that we're constantly confronted with. You know, at the end, that it's going to come good. You know, things are going to turn out all right in the end. Because I think this is fundamentally a comedy and not a tragedy. And in a very similar way to the mystery books, right? It's going to get resolved at the end, but you have all the all the fun is in that tension before it gets resolved in not so much like what the resolution will be. We know it's going to end in the killer getting found out. We know it's going to end in some marriages, but the question is, will there be happy marriages? Will there be marriages of convenience? Uh, will heroes or heroines get what they want or will they not? I really like the idea of who we can trust in these mysteries yeah. because the romance plot has a lot of that too. We will talk about him later, but Willoughby, he saves Marianne, our, one of our main heroines, we'll talk about in a moment. She breaks her ankle or sprains her ankle. He comes in like a knight in shining armor. He's very tempting to like. Then we learn we can't trust him. It's similar to a red herring, or not a red herring, or the, the actual killer who seems trustworthy often in a mystery. And then we find out, oh, they are hiding something much bigger than they're letting on. Before we move on, I just want to point out one other way that romances are connected to mysteries. <laughs> There's no outside world. like. Every character is related to each other character yes, in some way. That's so true. People who you would have no reason to think they have something in common, like so Willoughby and Colonel Brandon. Oh, it yeah. turns out that <laughs> Colonel Brandon's former lover yes. was essentially killed by Willoughby. You know what I mean? Like there's there's no outside world. It's just everyone has different layers of connections. Well, it's, and it's I not his former lover for... who's killed. It's his former lover's kid who is. Oh. Wait, former lover's kid? His, so, his former Brandon's lover dies lover of consumption. Dies, yeah, <laughs> in a poorhouse, but then he takes on her daughter uh, mm -hmm. because the dad's oh. the shit and the mum's dead. Then the daughter is the person that, miss, that Willoughby knocks up. So did, Brandon yeah. just can't catch a break, basically. It's every single look, woman he look, loves. you got to forgive me on but this. But I think they're both called Eliza, which is very quite confusing. And honestly, the names throughout this entire book are proper confusing, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So the mother's <laughs> name is Eliza Williams, yeah. and the daughter's yeah. name is Eliza Williams Jr. Eliza right. Williams. Exactly. So forgive me. Exactly. Forgive me. <laughs> exactly. I'm also, not calling you out here, but you read this book, you'll be like, oh, then this happened to Eliza, then this happened to Eliza Williams. You'd be like, oh, right, they're not the same person, of course. Why would I think that? Everybody's related by marriage, too. Like, everyone's half-related. Well, it's Almost difficult due book. to, like, the sort of the, uh, the the mannerisms of the time of, like, a, a, a married woman will be a, a Mrs. her husband. Yeah. But... Mrs. Dashwood will not be the same as Mrs. John Dashwood, right? Those are two different characters, of course. So it's it's, it's quite tricky to stay <laughs> on top of. And people want always, yeah, it's, 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 it's very tricky. Very tricky. Very tricky yeah. indeed. But yeah, let's talk about the, those main characters. Like, who who is really the book concerned about? I mean, the two main characters, obviously, Eleanor and Marianne. 
I was reading the first sure. the first iteration of this novel, the first draft of this novel was not titled Sense and Sensibility, it was entitled Eleanor and Marianne, and then it was subsequently changed to Sense and Sensibility. So really, you know, it's, it's quite unambiguous that Eleanor and Marianne are, you know, sense and sensibility in this book. And, and, and what we see is almost like the fate of sense and the fate of, se- the fate of sensibility in this time and place. I think that's kind of what, what, what this, the dynamic of this book really is, aside from all these characters and names so, and marriages and so forth. Let's define those two words, because I feel like they are used in a way that is not common modern English. Yeah, there are a you few times I mean? yeah. where I'm reading this book that I had to stop and reread a sentence a few times, like, wait, that word is clearly not being used the way I think of it. Yeah. Like the word mm. confidence, for example, is one that I think of in particular, yeah. you know, with the quote we said in the introduction. This idea that... Keeping confidence. Uh, well, yeah, you don't, you know, you don't have any confidence in me. That means you literally don't speak to me about things, not so much that you don't think mm-hmm. of my abilities as well. Or the, word, the other word from the quote that we talked about is this word communicate. Eleanor says the issue, Eleanor, Marianne, Eleanor is part of her sense, is in this restraint, not spilling her guts out, not, you know, thinking before she speaks and therefore not really saying what she wants to say, not really saying what she maybe would like to say. She'll say the proper thing. She'll say the prudent thing. It's all about being prudent. That's one of the sort of key virtues you seem to be able to have in this society. So sense is this prudence. It's not spilling your, uh, you know, spilling your heart out on, and it's not saying what you feel. It's adapting to circumstance, being prudent. That's what sense ultimately means. And somehow the word for that is almost like to communicate as opposed to lament or to, you know, extol or to eject like you know rather than these sort of spontaneous overflowings of speech communication is this very carefully considered prudential sensible way of speaking i think that's really what it means to have sense in the society it's to know the ways of society more or less to get along with them even if you're internally disagreeing with it or in conflict with it whereas i think sensibility is this romantic sentiment it runs away with you and you can get lost in sensibility i like the way that it's eleanor is described her sense in the beginning, it says that she knows how to govern her emotions. Uh. She can have emotions, but she knows how to withhold certain ones in company and then how to keep keep emotions in check. I think that's a really interesting word there as well, that word govern, right? Just mm. that sense is almost like a, a kind of a political sense. You know, it's like it's prudence. It's knowing how to, to get along with or how to say the right thing. So I think this word govern is very interesting. It's kind of like governing, whereas a governor will constantly have to choose their words very wisely and maybe hold back certain information and not express themselves in necessarily the way they feel for the greater good, in a sense, to govern their emotions. I like that. Whereas sensibility, as as embodied by Marianne, is, you know, well, like Marianne is the younger character, so maybe we're, you know, I tend to think that sensibility is some more recent phenomena. And sensibility really is, you know, the romantic sensibility, the rejection of social mores, the 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 desire for uh, immediacy in all things, immediacy in all actions. You know, not, not without without the mediation of the, you know, what's right or what's socially acceptable or what is prudent. No, that that's to be inauthentic is to to that's to be inauthentic. What you really want to be is authentic, to be <laughs> immediate, to express exactly what you feel, to conceal nothing, as the um, opposite of that quote is that we began with. She's also looking for, like, constantly looking for the next, like, rapturous yes. aesthetic experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it, like, it, like, beauty has to sweep her away. Yeah. It mm-hmm. can't just be, like, at, at one point she's, like, admiring, you know, autumn leaves. And mm. she's like, yeah, oh, 
oh, you know, going off about it, how it's the most gorgeous sight in the world. And her sister just says, yeah, I see a bunch of dead leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, a question for you guys. Do, do you think that the mindset that Marianne embodies this, this sensibility, do you think it is synonymous with youth? And in that sense, it's something that one is destined to grow out of? Or do you think it is kind of libertine, romantic, possibly even decadent type of person that she's meant to embody? Austin at the beginning calls it an affliction, calls it something that suffers from. And it's not just Marianne, but their mother too. And Eleanor has to actually like control their mother all the time because she is, she also, whenever she is moved by emotion far too much. Yeah. And only Eleanor has this sense since she kind of is running the household, not really her mother. So in a way you're saying like... But she's an old lady. Yeah, exactly. So it's like she's old, so it doesn't seem to just be a young person thing, right? Because she's more like Marianne. Yeah. Gosh, I wouldn't say they're sensible people in society or in culture, but that word has a different ring in, in modern yeah, sense. Yeah, I know, yeah. So, so there's this kind of like aesthetically driven, irrational, romantically spirited people in mm -hmm. society that Austin's kind of pointing towards and as a counterpoint, mm -hmm. giving us those with sense, yeah. those who are a bit more restrained, who can, can govern themselves. Yeah, exactly. And I think like sensibility is related to like an artistic sensibility as well. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, yeah, it's related to the artistic sensibility. You know, Marianne insists that, I mean, one of the key scenes is like the reading of poetry. For Marianne, it's yeah. absolutely essential that a person knows how to read poetry well. Whereas Edward, who is ultimately the primary love interest, well, the only love interest, but, you know, the primary sort of like potential suitor of Eleanor, sense, is Edward, this sort of very shy, bum kind of bumbling and modest son of what sounded like quite a tyrannical family and one who Eleanor and Marianne's half-brother John, a family he's, you know, married into or who's married to his family, but they made a marriage alliance with the Ferris, Edward Ferris is his name. And then this Ferris woman essentially... Well, the plot of the book, to, sorry, to take a bigger picture view, the beginning of the book, John Dashwood, the father of Eleanor and Marianne and their mother's second husband, oh no, he, she was his second wife, I believe. No, yeah, her second, second is, husband. Is he dies and he says to his son, John Dashwood, uh, right, you've got to take care of your, sis your half-sisters, my, you know, my daughters. And he says, yeah, sure, I will. But then he does an absolutely pitiful job of this, mainly motivated by Fanny Ferris, Edward's sister, who marries Eleanor Marianne's older brother, half-brother, should I say. And then she uh, says, their half-brother says, right, I'm going to give them each like a thousand pounds a year, they'll be fine. And then she's like, hmm? Yeah, they'll be more than fine, actually. A thousand pounds a year. Think of think of how rich they'll be. Try five hundred, and she'll be like, "Oh yes, you might be right there. You know, five hundred might be okay." And then she has, "Well, thinking a bit further, you know, they'll be more than amply comfortable there." And did your father specifically say you should be giving them money? I don't think that would really be the inference. Da da da. Anyway, so they basically end up getting nothing. They're impoverished, essentially. But if they're impoverished, but they still have servants, so it's kind of like I don't know. Things are different then, I guess. But, well, they're not kicked out of society, yeah. yeah but they I are mean, taken out of yeah, their comfort. They become very much dependent on others. Yeah, yeah. I they, they're kicked to, out of their uh, house. Bringing outside media into this, but I'm reading Dickens mm. at the same time as I'm reading mm. this, and the stark, stark contrast of worldview. Oh yeah, is, yeah. is like so. Like when they talk about being poor, I'm just like, uh, 
<laughs> you're not going to be shoveling coal anytime soon. You're yeah. not going to be fishing bodies yeah. out of the river, you know, to, yeah. to rifle their pockets for change. <laughs> yeah, these are very much yeah. comfortable people, nonetheless. It's just, just yeah. degrees of comfortability, which I think maybe adds a sort of satirical overtones of this a little bit. I, I would potentially argue that. Hmm. But yeah, Edward, it, this is how he's connected to the family, essentially, and it's a guy who Edward loves, but he cannot read poetry to save his life. He's rubbish at reading poetry. So Marianne hates him. But then, and she says to like um, Eleanor, how can you possibly be interested in this man? He's, a, he's, he's no, He has no aesthetic sensibilities. You know, so, and Marianne's like almost like very pretentious. She's very un intolerant of people who are not you know aesthetically wonderful and great performers i think that's also part of her sensibility and then she meets the the love of her life or so he thinks willoughby who embodies all of that he's handsome he's dashing he's great at reading poetry and so she's very taken in by the sort of performance and this immediacy of him but i think i think you've raised the interesting question there zach of like well what what really is like the fate of sense and sensibility, right? Like, what are we supposed to think here? Is is sensibility something you grow out of? Is that what the book's trying to tell us, or or is it more complex than that? And I feel like the best way to answer that is probably by looking at the characters. Which characters represent sense? Which characters represent sensibility? How do they develop? How do they come around? What what's their comeuppance, right? Like, what's what happens at the end of the book, and maybe equate that to somewhat the author's view of like if it will will, will sense sense or sensibility lead you to best success in this world? Gosh, you know, I <laughs> the, just I feel so like convoluted. The, the, the machinations of of where we get to are so convoluted and and possibly even irrelevant to talk about. But in the end, Marianne does grow out of her. I mean, from the start of the book, we're given Marianne who says. There's only one love you can have in your life. And she declares that love to be John Willoughby. Yeah. John Willoughby hurts her. And then she winds up with the good colonel. Yeah. Now, at the end of the book, it is alluded to that she does not love the good colonel. I don't know why I call him that. Colonel Brandon. But she marries him anyways and then learns to love him over time. Right. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, Eleanor just kind of keeps plugging along. She, she She has her sense. She is interested in marrying Edward Ferrars through a kind of comedy of errors. She believes that <laughs> he's marrying, was it Miss Steele? Well, he was marrying her. He was marrying he her, was but then it turns years. out that, yeah, <laughs> then it turns out there's been a kind of upset in the house of, of Ferrars to where Miss Steele instead marries his younger brother, Robert, and now he's free to pursue Eleanor. Well, it's kind of a funny story because if Lucy Steele is like this lower-class woman who is sort of devious... And she's wheeled away into Edward Ferris's affection, ultimately, you know, uh, uh, anyway. And then she basically talks yeah. Eleanor throughout the book. And the battle, oh, Edward's engaged to me. What will, ever will I do? The Ferris family loves me so much. Um, <laughs> and then it slips out that uh, this secret engagement has been going on with this lower class woman. And Mrs. Ferris, yeah. Edward's very formidable mother, has already, already has designs on him marrying for money to get a fortune of like 30 grand or something from, from another woman. So this secret engagement to a poor woman who doesn't even speak properly, like the way Jane Austen phrases her, she, she gives like, you know, well, I, well, well, I, I, all that. She, she speaks like that uh, rather than in the sort of proper tone of everyone else. And she writes horribly, apparently. Like she, so when she sends a note eventually to Edward, yeah. he's like, she's such Just a terrible writer. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But. Yeah, she is kind of a an evil person, but it's funny because Edward gets disinherited as a result of all this, <laughs> and then Eleanor, then Lucy, essentially leaves him for the brother, who then inherits that which <laughs> Edward had been disinherited for. 
revealed in herself, you know, kind of really, if you think about it, to be the ultimate gold digger in this book, even more so than Willoughby, yeah. who also is a gold digger. But yeah, she's a, shima, she's a female Willoughby, basically, with, with less class and taste. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that she leaves him because he gets disinherited. Then Robert loses his money anyway, yeah. so Lucy sort of loses out here, basically. They give him some money, but he doesn't see the thought, you know, they don't get the, the totality of it. She and Willoughby. Yeah, but I thought towards the, I thought, I thought, I thought right to the end, like Robert and Lucy also fell out of favour and lost some of their money as well. Well, they still eventually give Robert some money because the mother they will, give him some will money, forgive him. Deep... Well, he gets more than Edward, though. He still gets most of the fortune, and Edward still gets. Oh, I think Edward gets five hundred a year. But I thought towards the, I thought, I, th- I thought right to the end, like Robert and Lucy also fell out of favor and lost some of their money as well. No, no, no. They, they did. She hates them. The Ferrers, mother Ferrers, hates them, and then starts to realize, oh, she loves Lucy and can never do without Lucy, and then decides to give. Robert all the fortune because she's always loved Robert more and then gives Edward only 500 Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, but I think I thought after yeah. that that things changed a little bit. Like things got more fair for Edward because he started writing a letter and stuff and Robert and Lucy clearly oh. did something else to offend them, I think. But I do think Lucy and Robert get a come up and see it. But it's really just the humor of the situation that he had, uh, you know, gets yeah. inherited from getting get engaged to a girl, then the brother gains the inher- inheritance then. Lucy hops over to the brother and ditches Edward, thus freeing Edward to uh, eventually get with our heroine, Eleanor, and eventually leaving Lucy with less than she would have had if she'd just stayed put. So there's a real morality tale there, I think. I have a thesis to drop on you guys, and I think it centers on how you called Lucy, what did you say? The female Willoughby. The female Willoughby, yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that. I mean in the sense that they both ultimately leave... Another Start person off that saying, they ostensibly loved for the sake of money. For money. Even when, as you said, they're ultimately none of them going to end up in the poorhouse sure, anytime soon. Sure, too. sure. Well, okay, so so I think that Jane Austen wanted to write a purely allegorical novel. And I don't think Jane Austen successfully wrote a purely allegorical novel. And that's why people still read it today. If it was a pure allegory where it was, you know, 100% didactic, everything fit neatly into their boxes, I think it wouldn't be an interesting story. And you can find all kinds of stories like this, especially in like medieval tales, you know. But I think it's complicated by a lot of ambiguity. Hmm. So, you know, we can start off with, you know, a spectrum. We can say, of course, Eleanor is sense, Marianne is sensibility. For me, the way I saw it would be Willoughby is sensibility like Marianne, uh-huh. but sensibility turned towards a kind of sickness, if that makes sense. He, like, yeah, he he took advantage of Marianne, but, you know, he, he also has that sensibility and it kind of flings him in different directions uh-huh. in ways yeah. that he can't really control. Well, in a way, he doesn't have sensibility, though. He's less the platonic ideal of sensibility than Marianne is because he sure. ultimately chooses money, sense, uh-huh. arguably over sensibility sure sure but i mean if we're talking platonic ideals then it's like finding the middle ground restrained in all in all forms so marianne is more ideal than willoughby so willoughby is sensibility turned towards sickness but when we talk about Uh, oh my gosh her name lucy Steele, i don't think she's worse than willoughby i think she's sense turned to sickness in the sense of i don't think lucy Steele loves anyone I think she's just coldly yeah. calculating and finding, yes. you know, like, height, like, a, like a machine trying to 
hone in on the best position for herself socially. And in that sense, I, I don't want to say she has something in common with Eleanor, but she has more in common with Eleanor than she does Marianne. No, I think she's almost like the evil twin, you know, the sort of the, the, the opposite evil image of Eleanor. Right? I agree. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, maybe complicate. I mean, to again, obviously it's overly didactic. Like I do agree that there's a lot of subtlety in Jane, Jane Austen's writing. And, you know, sense and sensibility do cross over in different characters. For example, like earlier I said that, you know, it seemed like Marianne had the sensibility, the artistic sensibility. And yet Eleanor is also a painter who is considered to be quite a good painter, even though she's sense. So it's not yeah. it's not a simple opposition. But yeah, I do agree that maybe sensibility turned to sickness. This, Or we have sense and sensibility, but we have sense, but sense and sensibility turned towards the good, let's say. And sense and sensibility turned towards, you know, sickness and, and, and yeah. depravity. In the book, throughout the plot, Marianne actually does get very, very sick. <laughs> and then she overcomes this sickness, and it's after overcoming this sickness that she somehow becomes more sensible, like sensible in the sense of having sense. And she's thus able to deal with Willoughby, who is now still in a romantic wreck. <laughs> she's able to move on and make the, the choice to go with the good Colonel Brandon. <laughs> so, it, you know, in terms of this idea of sensibility as a sickness, it's one that sort of Marianne seems overcomes, yeah. arguably in like a literal sense. Yeah. So so just to add on a further point, I think if we're talking about an allegorical story, it's important to talk about where characters end up at the end. Yes, exactly. So yeah. if Will Willoughby is sensibility turned to sickness, we spend the whole novel thinking he's evil. He's wicked. He yeah. takes advantage of people. He's like, a, you know, his portrayal has more in common with the vampire novels we've yeah, read for sure. than anything else, actually. He drains life well, from yeah, young girls. Well, yeah, he makes but, Marianne sick, So that's, right? that's all of it. And I'm about to say, she's lost mm -hmm. the bloom of her yeah. youth, but it turns out she's so, just ill. <laughs> but he's redeemed at the end. Yeah. Austin redeems him. He's not, he's not the villain here. No. Whereas Lucio Steele, you know, throughout the whole book, she had kind of an ambiguous place. But for me, as I read her character, I thought she was holding on to her relationship with Edward out of a kind of romanticism. Like, you know, we're in secret, but, you know, I'm in love with them kind of a thing. But that's not the case yeah. at all. Yeah. Just manipulative. She's cynical. And at the end, the true villain is revealed to be Lucy. Yeah. So, in this sense, it does. In the sense, it doesn't seem to be that the Marianne John Willoughby side of the spectrum is truly being condemned by Jane Austen. I mean, on the surface, it's being condemned, but it's kind of a half measure condemnation, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, I think he's he's also. I, I'm I'm not sure if he's ever really like fully like yeah not uh, fully. beyond reproach because. In a way, it, Marianne is partially guilty of being naive, which is understandable because mm -hmm. she's like 16 years old. But yeah, she's guilty of being quite naive because he never actually says we're engaged. He never actually says, I love you. Yeah. You know, he never says these things. She infers yeah. it because she's never experienced like this sort of life before. And she just, she's got this, she's, she's lived her life entirely in books and poetry. And she only, you know, she believes in very much in the reality of these, these spontaneous affections. Her mother um, and then she gets too. infected by the sickness. Her mother, her mother compounds that as well. Yeah, but when we get his letters, he says, and we're not sure if we agree with it, believe him or not. But he's like, I did not actually say anything wrong. I don't, if I've given you the wrong impression, then I made a mistake. Now, obviously, that turns out actually not to be the case. He did yeah. truly love her. Eleanor was mm -hmm. Marianne was right all along to believe that. But it is ambiguous throughout whether he to what do I think he is as bad as he says he is. And obviously, it becomes clear that he's either knocked up Colonel Brennan's ward. Not granddaughter, but sort of his ward, the, the daughter of his beloved who he was separated from, which is a, a nefarious thing to do. 
then he ultimately ditches Marianne for money. And you can still see that as com com uh, con consistent with sensibility, I think, because of this way in which sensibility is also linked to like artistic, you know, things and beautiful things, right? So having a beautiful home or, you know, wearing beautiful, fine fabrics is also part of this sensibility. It takes money to do that. Hmm. So, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily inconsistent with it. I think he's, he's um, driven by sensibility yeah. and uses sense to escape his fear. So he's still yeah. all sensible, but he is using society to be able to get away from the fear that he's generated for himself by being so emotional, by being so driven yeah. by sensibility. Yeah. But Lucy Steele as well throughout, I think I was suspicious of her from the first time that we met yeah. her. And for throughout, she always seemed to me more like she was gloating all the time. And, and I think she'd sensed that Eleanor had affections for Edward and her being the cold calculating manipulator, the Machiavellian uh, character in the book, Yeah, I, oh. I, would, I would say, is really trying to deter this affection and playing on the good the good nature of Eleanor, who, like Edward, are both unable to extricate themselves from the grip of Lucy Steele because of their own decency. So she takes advantage of the decency of both Edward because she knows he won't renege on his engagement because that, he's just he's made a promise he'll keep it. That's his, his nature. He's very sort of pious almost in that sense, very honest and just. And Eleanor, the same thing. If someone's been, she's been taken, she's taken Eleanor into her confidence in order to ultimately deter her from getting with Edward. So purely selfish means. And yet, because she's taken into confidence, Eleanor will not give that away, secret away. Okay. So she takes advantage of the decency of others, like a parasite almost. So what is, what is good sense and what is good sensibility in this book? What, what, what should sense and what should sensibility be oriented towards? If it's not to gain and to these external goods and to excess, what is it? What should it be dedicated towards? Is it this idea of prudence, or in what 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 should good sense of good sensibility be oriented towards? I think you have to have prudence, otherwise society will cast you out, and you're going to hurt people. But then you also have to have real love, which is sensibility. I think Eleanor is yeah. not just pure sense; she also has emotions, and she tells Mar Marianne yeah. accuses her of having no sensibility at all, of having no way to love yeah and she even accuses her like you don't even you didn't even care when edward Ferrer's left you and he said she says no of course i did i've been holding this pain all mm. this time i just know not mm -hmm. to i was taken into the confidence i'm not gonna say that i know i can't marry him because of lucy Steele. so she's been keeping it a secret because society dictates yeah. she must do that but she still has emotions she truly loves edward Ferrer's. she has no she's not doing it for society's sake so she's not only sense and Marianne, I think, is sensibility finally tempered by sense. So she, she makes yeah. the, the proper choice at the end and marries Colonel, Colonel Brandon. And neither one, I mean, there's lots of ways to look at the end and who is successful, but Marianne is 10 times as rich as Eleanor at the end. And she's made yeah. the, the poor decision at the beginning. Other women who made that poor decision were cast out. Like she could have turned out like Eliza. Yeah. Yeah. And Colonel Brandon is very explicit about that. Even compares her, yeah, compares her very closely to Eliza multiple times. So to say that if you're only sensible, you you, you have to learn your lesson, I guess, if you are totally and sensible. And there's something really very yeah. sense. There's a real strong aspect of sensibility in Colonel Brandon as well. For sure, yeah. Really, he reads poetry you know, well. being this military man and being very sensible, he does he read poetry music. well. So that's yeah. the key thing. He loves music. Yeah. But also, you know, he's got this romantic vision of... You know, Eliza, he, he himself wanted that spontaneous love and it was thwarted from him. And then he sees yep. the opportunity to have it again. 
in in Marianne. So he is a very romantic character in that sense as well. Where yeah, I think he's, Edward he's is not the, so much. Yeah, Edward, yeah. not Edward. No, he he's Edward's very similar to Eleanor, where he's bottled it up. You know, five years have gone by; he's done nothing. Brandon has learned yes. the lesson that that Mar- Marianne learned. So he sees that she's going to have to learn a similar lesson because he fell in love with Eliza and then his parents shipped him off to the army so he could not be with her. And then her Eliza's life fell apart. He was head yeah. over heels just yeah. like Marianne was, but he learned and came back. So I think what I'm curious about is like what 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 is the, the intended like orientation towards society in a sense? Like what how what do you think like the optimal orientation towards society is in, in this book? Right. Like. That this is a society where there's constantly, you know, it's all about who you can get married to, and marriage is still very much, uh, you know, a, a contract between families yeah. at this point. And yet, there is this sort of, in both cases, the love affair that wins out is is not, an, uh, you know, a conventional one. <laughs> the two are concerned with, you know, it's one where the husband is disinherited before the match is made. Then with with Marianne, she gets with, you know, the Colonel Brandon, but. That's only after a great amount of suffering on his part. Like, mm-hmm. But what, you know, it, it seems like Jane Austen's message is definitely not, you should always be sensible and do exactly what, you know, what society wants. But at the same time, it's clearly not a sort of purely romantic book that believes, you know, society is simply an evil, right? That like, there is mm-hmm. good in civilized society. But it's oh. also very critical and very satirical about this civilized society. So what do you guys think is like the orientation might be like? You could say maybe like what is Jane Austen's orientation potentially, but more like within this world, what do you think the ultimate orientation is kind of is? I think you have to have this both. world the story, I mean. If you don't if you're just following society and marrying for money or the unification or like the, the contracts between families, we hate all those people. Like all the people that did that in this book yeah. are not like Is that just oh. our own bias though, right? I, like, I think I feel it's like we're still very much a sense, sensibility over sense society when it comes to relationships. I think it's clear that Austin is not a fan of Lucy. I, I yes. don't think she's portrayed in a positive light at all. And I think the it's clear that, well, sorry, to me, it feels like Austin very much likes both Marianne and Eleanor. And they are both a yeah. combination of sense and sensibility. Even though one might be driven by sensibility, one might be driven by sense, they, are, they have both. So you have to have real yeah. love and you have to follow, you have to, be, you have to be proper. You have to be prudent. If you just follow love, you'll end up in a poorhouse. If you fake it, to abide by society, Austin, I don't believe, likes that, even though it's probably yeah. happening all over the place. I, I think it's important to note that Eleanor is not a, like, rock-like character. Eleanor okay. is a character that changes. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Eleanor opens herself up to love and gets hurt and then comes out of that. And I yeah. think in doing so, Eleanor moves closer to Marianne's position. As Marianne is simultaneously moving closer to Eleanor's position, the two sisters end up more alike than dissimilar by the end of the book. So I think that somewhere around, like between the difference of those two right there Mm -hmm. is kind of the ideal of, in this this book's kind of the ideal perspective one should take, like uh, as an individual, the ideal like orientation towards life. Yeah. Eleanor is equipped with something to handle this situation. Marianne is not because it almost kills Marianne. Like we said, she gets a fever. She almost dies. She's so brokenhearted. She doesn't really take care of herself anymore and she almost dies but eleanor suffers emotionally but gets over it and even at the beginning of the book it says yes she can have she can suffer but she always still struggles on and continues to work whereas her sister and mother will just cry for days and and do nothing and they would just die if they weren't 
by themselves. So I don't know if, do you think Eleanor is changed by the book or does she just have an experience? I feel like Marianne has to change or die through the book. I don't know. Like her arc is is essential. And I think Eleanor would probably be fine without this plot. Yeah. (laughs) I I agree with this idea that like Eleanor is not a rock. But yeah, I I, I do Mm. think that's a very interesting point, Bob, that like it's quite clear that Marianne grows as a character and has to develop or adapt or die, essentially. Yeah. Well, it's not clear yeah. that at any yeah. point Eleanor has to adapt or die. It feels like she's already what pretty well adapted. It's just a case of circumstances in a way changing to her favor. It doesn't sound she's she's had like some active yes. change in her orientation that has sure. resulted in her success. Whereas Marianne, to be happy in this book, has to consciously adapt to a new way of living, a new worldview ultimately. So I, I, yeah, I think I'm not sure that I would agree yeah. that Eleanor does have to do that at any point in this book. She doesn't have to become less sensible. Whereas I think. Marianne very much does. Yeah. And it's interesting, maybe it's like a bio- biographical note, like not to get into too much like autobiog- autobiography of the novelist, but apparently Jane Austen wrote Eleanor based on her older sister, Cassandra. Uh, and Jane herself was more Very like interesting. So, you know, in a wow, way... Wow, I did not expect that at all. Yeah. So in a way, I think that that is maybe part of the dynamic of the book as well. But I'll just leave that as a purely speculative detail because that's just autobiography. But... I really do think that, like, you say exactly, like, why is it we keep reading this book? Why is this book still popular? I think really one of the main things about this book is just that that relationship between those two sisters, Eleanor and Marianne. Like, aside from their allegorical, hmm. you know, function as sense and sensibility personified, just the relationship between the sisters, the sort of human relationship is very, very realistic, very well fleshed out, very, feels very particular. As much as the allegorical characters, the, 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 the relationship between sisters is a very particularly good one. You know, just in the detail of the way they act, yeah. not necessarily in the way they're, you know, just represents an idea. So they're very much like both three-dimensional human beings who have a very, you know, interesting, yeah, for believable sure. three-dimensional relationship. And I think that's what probably what elevates this book above the regular fare of, oh, will he, will, will he marry me? Will he marry me? Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, they, I think this sort of heart of the book is actually the sister's relationship and not their actual relationship with these men or with society. You know, the, the, the relationship between the two sisters, I think, is the heart of the book, more yeah. so than their actual pursuits. Yeah. It's a book about sisterly love. I, I do wonder about the pursuit, though. So I, I agree with you 100%, but I, I am confused by this book in the sense of the goal that everyone keeps throwing out is marriage. But what yeah. comes after marriage? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't get a sense that there's a single thought taken to after the wedding day. You know what I mean? Oh, no. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. What's a, I think that's the plot of a romance is... Will they or will they not? And there has to end in happily for now or happily ever after. And that would be a marriage, a comedy, you know. I guess you couldn't fault a mystery book for not giving an answer to what comes at, you know, the day after the murderer is caught. You know what I mean? (laughs) But (laughs) but like this world is so foreign, you know what I mean, to our present world that I I just want to know more about it. I want to I want to know what these characters are thinking about. I want to know, you know, what is important to them. And it can be some of it can be explained away. Well, let me put it this way. I was talking to someone about it and they were saying that these the, these these ladies are living in a time in which women were not educated and women did not work. So, yeah. The, you know, they their concerns are uh, the concerns of a type of person who probably doesn't exist anymore and cannot exist now. Yeah. A kind of... Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, someone who exists only to find their place within a new family through marriage. 
I think we do get we do get one example in the book of a marriage in action. I think well, we get two. I would say we get uh, the first one that came to mind for me. Uh, well, I'll say the first one, then I'll say the one that I'm going to develop on. One of them being obviously Mrs. John Dashwood and John Dashwood, the half brother and evil sister in law, half sister in law, Fanny. Fanny. Fanny Ferris, Mr. Mr. John Dashwood, Miss Fanny. And that's kind of like an example of married life where that takes the shape of the wife really dictating the financial affairs of the household and really wearing the pants in their relationship, arguably, and causing uh, by constriction, as if like a boa constrictor, the gradual increase in the impoverishment and marginalization of John Dashwood's half-sisters to whom he is responsible due to his oath with his father before he died. That's one example of a marriage we see. We also see one that's a lot more positive, I think, ultimately, which is the Palmers. Mrs. Palmer and Mr. Palmer. Mrs. Palmer, (laughs) the very gregarious daughter of Mrs. Jennings, who we've already spoken about, the ultimate matchmaker. Um, Or not so much because she's an awful matchmaker, but she's very enthusiastic about matchmaking. And we see her husband, who is very absolutely opposite to her. She's gregarious and chatty, and she never shuts up. He is... Just always making droll comments. He wants to be an MP. He's very serious. He he only ever says about one sentence in response to a general thing. They couldn't be more like. It couldn't be more unlike. And I think that's a very comedic sort of version of like, well, they've got married, but now they just have they have absolutely nothing in common. They somehow make it work. Yeah, they have a baby. He's like looks like any other baby. She's obviously obsessed with it, talking about whether it resides or you know the fathers and mothers and all this stuff. He's like, look, all looks into me. Yeah, um, I love that. You know, so that kind of works. And yeah. yet somehow I think that marriage works because they just spend so much time in society. They rarely seem to have to actually speak to one another. She'll be like, he doesn't speak to me five hours a day. and it, But she then she goes off to speak to other people. So I guess, I don't know. Yeah. It, I it think that's supposed to be a question. parody of marriage. Yeah. Though. I don't think we're that's supposed I mean. to think, I think that. It works, it works according to society. And I think what you said earlier is like, this could be a satirical novel. I think it is satirizing some societal marriages because it shows us those that we're staying together, but it certainly doesn't make sense. And that's why we have two couples at the end who have both love and mm. society. Mm. So saying you, for a marriage, you need both. And I don't know if that was going on. Because, you know, she's, she's kind of, Jane Austen's a really important innovator for romance novels. And I think she might have been one of the first people to kind of blend this. You, you have to please society while you also have to honor love. Mm. I don't know if the other romance novels were doing the same thing at the same time. Something someone said just a minute ago really made me start thinking about feeling quite different from our our day and what's happening in the novel. And I often notice that's I really like Eleanor, but sometimes, especially with her her friendship with Lucy, I mean, we don't like Lucy, but I also started to think, wow, Eleanor is so dishonest. She has promised her confidence, but she is pretending to be this woman's friend. She just hates her. Her emotions inside would probably just rather kill this person. But she knows she has to be polite to her. She has to listen to every every machina- every manipulative thing that Lucy says. And Marianne actually accuses her at one point, and she says, "What does she say? Oh yeah, I thought this is what El- uh, Marianne says. I thought it was right, Eleanor, to be guided wholly by the opinion of other people, and I thought our judgments were given to us by our neighbors." And she says, "I believe that this has been your doctrine." And then Marianne says no, and she introduces her own doctrine, which she calls the plan of general civility, which is that that prudence. You have to be polite to people. Even you, you always have to make company feel like they're in good company. If you must confront them about something, you may do so. But 
there are certain things you, you can't confront. So I felt that she's lying to herself and she's lying to Lucy when she should just tell Lucy, honestly, I love Edward, get out of my way. But I guess at this time, it, that would have been not just frowned upon, but immoral. She's yeah. she's kind of delegating herself to the NPC role, you know, by by only <laughs> yeah. playing it safe and cordial and respectable. She will ensure that she never gets what she wants, except through you know blind chance, which is what happens at the end of the novel. Yeah, yeah, and yes. and I do think that <laughs> that is a. I think you're you're right, and I think that that is. I don't want to say it's an overt criticism. Or not an overt complication of the dichotomy between sense and sensibility, but it's hanging out underneath. Like whether or not Jane Austen meant to undermine Eleanor, Eleanor is certainly undermined. I do think it probably is deliberate. You know, I I agree with you. Like, you know, sense, you know, is in a way not just advocated by this book. Because really what it's saying is unless blind chance just happens to fall your way because looking for you, this is this is essentially a comedy, you know, so it's got a happy ending. That's just its genre that you know ultimately the thing i think that the difference is that that it brings up is that well sensibility when taken to the extreme will bring about a crisis moment that forces adaptation yeah. right because you were saying earlier about like, hmm. adapt or die well you only adapt when you you have to adapt when you're when you're forced to by oh, some cool. kind of disaster or calamity that the force you to make a make a change Whereas I think sense, the thing with sense is like, you'd, yeah, it seems like if you follow sense, unless blind chance happens to follow your way, you might well not get what you, what you want. You just brought to the NPC role. You also never get brought to that moment of crisis that forces you to change, right? Things can never get quite yeah. bad enough at any one moment for you to snap. Whereas for Marianne, things get bad enough that she snaps, nearly dies, and then she's forced to adapt. Yeah. She's forced to change like a wound that heals. Whereas the wound never gets quite bad yeah. enough to ever really heal up um, for Eleanor, I think, as sense. So yeah, I do agree that it's it's not so, a simple dichotomy by any means. But nonetheless, I feel I feel that's what this book is about. It's not so much representing a simple morality of like be sensible versus being romantic. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely yeah. not what's going on here. I think it's more just like an exploration of the the sort of the dynamic or the conflict between and the relationship between sense and sensibility and how that can manifest yeah. itself in in a world like this. And I think the fact that it's not simple, the fact that it's not reductive is what makes it work. I think overtly the book presents itself like that by presenting these, you know, a dichotomous title. But I think that just by opening, you know, and reading a couple of chapters, you quickly learn that it's not as simple as the title would lead you to believe. It's almost like a false, what would you call that? A a false herring? I don't know. Something. Well, I think it's like a dialectic. A red herring. It's like a dialectic, but the dialectic Mm -hmm. it sets up is not a Hegelian one, it's a Socratic one. Like, like it's not a dialectic of uh you know a you know thesis antithesis ah synthesis everything's better now right we've improved we've t- put the two together and now we've got the ultimate combination it's not like that it's a platonic dialectic where there's nothing but problems all the way down yeah you end Just, up in aporia confusion you say yeah, oh i don't, know where, I don't know where we're at i think ultimately i think yeah. that's what's cool about the book and i think that's what you're saying Zach, about this is not a simple morality tale it's not a simple allegory this is why it still continues to interest us today because it ultimately remains open and it's an it's an open ended dialectic to this day, right? It's not that this book has solved the dialectic of sense of sensibility and now we've moved on to some higher plane. It's like mm-hmm. no, the, the the dialectic of sense of sensibility arguably continues in all of our lives and there is no perfect way of framing it and there's no perfect way of adapting to the world according to one or the other. But nonetheless, we can't do without either. We're just sort of constantly making these decisions to and fro, and we recognize that in the book. I think that's what gives this book its vitality. We recognize that in the characters. We recognize this conflict within ourselves. And it's really enjoyable to see this conflict being 
mapped out very masterfully by, you know, indisputably a very great writer. So, yeah, I really enjoyed reading the book. It's really interesting, too, to see those those conflicts because there's two very distinct, like, parallel conflicts. The love plot between Brandon and Eleanor and the love plot between Marianne, sorry, Marianne and Brandon and the love plot between Ferrers and Eleanor because they're completely different plots. The one, like you said, we have to wait for fate to drop into their lap and fix everything for Eleanor and Ferrers. But then Marianne and Brandon, it's the the two of them are kind of making decisions and moving it on their own. So I think I'm wondering if when we read more romances, if if more romances will have like two parallel plots like that, or if they'll choose one or the other. Yeah, this is going to be a great sequence of books. I'm really excited to... I'm also really interested. I think what I'm curious to see with romance as well, it seems to me that this one is very much in the genre of comedy. You know, in the sense of like, you know, the basic yeah. opposition, is it a comedy or a tragedy? Maybe it's one of the most simple genre demarcation you can draw. Yeah. I think this is a comedy because obviously it ends in apathy for, the, for all the people we're actually concerned with. And that we get a lot of satire yeah. and we see a lot of people get, you know, to just deserves. I'm curious if that's going to be consistent throughout the romance books we read or are we going to read a mixture of comedies and tragedies? Is Are they always going to get married in the end? just like a modern-day rom-com where we know they're going to get together in the end. Is it like that in the romance books we're going to read? Or is that just the kind of the the aspects of the genre that's been run with? Because it maybe sells the best to a larger audience, right? Fair, fair. That's what I'm curious to see. Can we rely on the, the happy ending? I really want to see this too, and I'm really curious about the books that we've chosen, which are quite a bit older. Because now, for modern books, what I've heard is, if it is a tragedy, it has failed the romance genre, and it does not fit within the romance genre. Fair. For a romance book, it must be a comedy. Mm. And I'm wondering Have you seen that? for, you know, our French. Yeah, yeah, for you sure. I've heard people like say that. that. Like, uh, you know, the whole yeah. young adult folks and our style yeah. stuff where it's like, oh, they're in love, but one of them's got cancer yeah. or something. Then, do you know what I mean? That's also a big thing as well. So I'm, I'm curious what that's the balance true. is going to be. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that's a good point. But I don't know if pe- anyone would call The Fault in Our Stars a straight romance novel in the sense of how people generally talk about romance. I mean, I haven't read the book. I don't know anything about it, but I don't think I've I've seen your average romance reader yeah. be like, oh yeah, The Fault in Our Stars is great as romance. You know what I mean? So I guess the question simplified would be that is romance necessarily comedic, a comedy? So I mean, there's only one way to find out. Gosh, I hate to I hate to try to throw an answer out too soon, but Romeo and Juliet is a good answer to that. But that's a tragedy. That's not considered one of the romances. It's romantic, but I think it's considered a tragedy. It's not a comedy. Wow. We, we got our hands full. I can tell right now. Bob, what are we reading next week? I believe next week we will be reading Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Ooh, hot dog. Wuthering Heights. It's going to get paranormal. It's going to get spooky, and it will be tragic. So that one might break our rules. All right. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Bye.